went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. 
But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so today, once again, for the 103rd Sunday, we're continuing with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. So we are on element seven, letter N, small letter C, third message on 7N. For each letter, we've been going just 6A, B, C. Uh, For instance, uh, element five, which is Jesus Christ, the only solution or mediator. We did uh, 30 weeks on that. So when we got to Z, then we had small Z, or Z, small A, Z, small B, C, small C. Uh, So we did 30 weeks on Christology, who is Jesus Christ, and then we did, uh, I think it was 24 weeks on what it means to receive Jesus Christ, and so forth. So uh, element seven is, is all about what we call the pattern of the first step, five steps of entering the kingdom of God. If you've been around Grace Christian Fellowship very long, long you know that we use verses out of Exodus 25 that are quoted both by Stephen in Acts 7 and by the writer of Hebrews in Acts 8, 5. Uh, that Moses was called to make the tabernacle according to the pattern. And um, the idea is, is that the body of Christ is now the tabernacle of God in the earth, and God has given us specific instructions and an, an exact pattern for how we're to conduct ourselves and in the body of Christ, what the structure of leadership, what the names of leaders should be, what their function should be, what, how we should live in community, why we should value the Lord's day, and so forth. And we don't have a right to tinker with these things, nor do we have a right, as has become popular since Bible-believing Christianity grew out of the 1800s, to just uh, be so selective about which parts we want to, to apply. So beginning around the 1830s, uh, the what, before the Second Great Awakening, uh, the idea began to sweep evangelicalism, which has taken hold deeper and deeper and deeper, reaching its kind of climax maybe in the 1980s, of lowering the the, the cost and lowering the content and uh, just concentrating on a few simple things and so forth, so that we don't hinder people from coming into the kingdom of God by the offenses of the gospel. And that idea 
what happens over time is ideas take sometimes decades to maybe even centuries to begin to show the true fruit of what they are. So, you know, there was a Chinese historian that was asked about the French Revolution, and he said, no serious historian could have a, an opinion on such a recent event. But, uh, but I would say that it's pretty clear that the, uh, you know, the French Revolution was called the revolution that eats its children. And uh, if you look at uh, the history of France since then, uh, you know, the United States has had one constitution in that time period. France has had over 25 constitutions in that time period because the whole country is devastated and has been devastated and will be devastated for many years to come for lots of reasons, including the French Revolution. But anyway, that being said, um, what's become increasingly clear is that our modernistic approach to uh, which was ironically a result of the, of the fundamentalist evangelical reaction to modernism, the modernist approach to interpreting scripture is beginning to breed a crisis in all of so-called Bible-believing Christianity to the point where our divorce rate is similar to theirs, our number of children that were raised in Christian homes that are not uh, staying with the faith when they grow up is, is, uh, is at an all-time high. Um, we're living in a virtual revival of the cult. What was once known as Christendom of Europe is down to about little under 4% of the people profess Christianity and about 2% practice it in any meaningful way. In America, we've gone uh, since uh, about in the, in the 1970s, about 80-some percent of Americans would have considered themselves Christians. Now, less than 50% of Americans consider themselves Christians. And that's not a long period of time historically. So, uh, clearly, we have to consider doing a rethink and knowing enough history and, and biblical studies and theology to not wait till the till you know the, the thing things so dead that the flesh has been rotting and smells bad, it gets worse and worse and worse until we begin to realize, hey, that we need a rethink here and a rebuild. And that's really the heart of this series, just about one subject, the gospel. Um. So with that, one of the ideas is that there were patterns in the New Testament when people came to Christ, receiving Jesus Christ always involves two things. One, it, revolved, it involves Jesus uh, activating your spirit. Your spirit is born out of fellowship with God. It's, it, and it's in Ephesians 2, you, Paul says he, we were made alive. Your spirit is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're born again. And you become a new creature, and you're supposed to receive with that a new life with new attitudes, new motivations, and so forth. And that's supposed to lead like a bang-bang type of thing to conversion. But what is increasingly happening in modern times is people who really actually have some encounters with God and have life in their spirit and so forth uh, don't get converted. And so they're still in their heart and mind their own Lord. They still have tons of immaturity issues. They're showing no fruit or growth in the things of God over long periods of time because they weren't converted to a biblical gospel. So what just happened? Some, light, some lights went out. Which one? Uh-oh. I saw something happen. Well, they, none of that will happen once the real lights are in, so it's, it's fine. I got plenty of light, but take up number eight a little bit, please. And I have more from this one. 
and these guys back here. So anyway, um, if you look at Roman numeral two on your outline, the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel, uh, number t- uh, point, sub point A2, the, it lists the first five steps. And right now we're doing a, a mini series on step three called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a uh, experience and a teaching that is foreign to many Christians uh, all over the Western culture and many Christians worldwide who've, been, who've uh, been brought about by the missionary movements of the 19th and 20th century. Now, nevertheless, if you go to developing nations where there's a great growth in the gospel in Central America, South America, Africa, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, even India, uh, which is not affecting the whole world, by the way. The, 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 there's no great move of God in Taiwan, for instance, where uh, only 3 or 4% of the population of Taiwan is Christian. There's no great move of God in Japan. About 1% of J- Japanese are Christian. But there are great moves of God in most places in the world, uh, other than the West, other than what Europe and America and North America, uh, Canada including. There are great moves of God in most places in the world. And uh, one of the aspects of that is the, uh, that is increasingly charismatic, filled with the Spirit, doing miracles, casting out demons, speaking in tongues, uh, versions of Christianity. Less and less do we have versions of Christianity that don't include those things. I was six months a Christian before I began to realize that there were Christians who didn't practice those things because I became a Christian by reading the Bible and I was like, I didn't know. I didn't know there were Christians who didn't cast out demons and speak in tongues and things like that because, you know, I got converted by reading the book Acts and the Gospels and so forth. So uh, I came to understand that later. So uh, this thing called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, many Christians are ignorant to this today. Uh, and so, you know, what we want to do is, as graciously as possible, is try to win a relationship with them, whereby hopefully uh, they could, would be willing to uh, consider the, the, what the Scripture really says, despite whatever they might have been taught. So uh, now part of this series is just to try to equip you to do that. So we're running both these series contemporaneously, you might say, or simultaneously. Um, looking at Roman numeral three, today we're going to get into, uh, we're, we, we're right now, I guess we're looking at uh, Roman numeral 2.C. The last two weeks, we started going through five biblical examples of people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit with looking for five biblical results or things that happened in each case and see if there's a pattern there. Okay, so two weeks ago, we, just, we looked through Acts 2 with regard to those five things that we'll talk about in a second. Last week, we looked at Acts 9. Unfortunately, we had a, a follow-up in a, a mic we had gotten rid of because it wasn't working, got used, so there's no podcast of that. Even though um, we did a very good job last week of opening up why it was so important that Philip went to the Samaritans and why he waited to have Peter and John and their team come before, even though there were Samaritans receiving Christ, being water baptized, lame were walking, uh, people were being healed, demons were coming at casting out, he waited to pray for them to receive the power of the Holy Spirit until the arrival of a, t- a team accompanied by Peter, led by Peter and John. 
And there, we, we talked all about that. At the end of this teaching, because I actually for once had a little bit of room left over, unbelievable. It's like a miracle. Uh, if you, if, since you can't get next week, last week's teaching, I listed a book there, but, uh, and it's called uh, Jesus in the Gospels, an Introduction and Survey. Now, it's a college textbook. It's like 500 pages. You can, you can shorten it a little bit by skipping section two of the five sections, which is all about form criticism and higher criticism and stuff that just makes me furious. So, and probably, and hopefully will you, because it's just liberal humanistic nonsense. But... Uh, the rest of it's quite good, and what's imp- very important, if you've never done this, is the, the first parts give you what's called the intertestament period. If you have never read a book or two on the intertestament period, you will, you will get about 10% out of reading the New Testament that you would get after you read that. that it's, and it's that important. Because in the intertestament period, all the things you encounter in the New Testament develop. And so knowing that history, starting with, say, the, uh, the, the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., which is B- the intertestament period is technically after Malachi in 392 B.C., but if you go back a little further, uh, that will begin to prepare you to understand who the Samaritans are. And if you study the, you know, the, the captivity of the southern kingdom in 586, if you're just aware of a few facts, really, it doesn't take a lot, if you're aware of what Alexander the Great brought to the table when he conquered that area and brought a movement called Panhellenism, which he tried to Greekify the whole world and brought the Greek language to, to uh, what later became the Roman Empire. Uh, I've got a light show going on. But uh, that's just because uh, the connections that have been made are, uh, were made by guys that haven't made that many connections. But... Uh, and didn't twi- twist the wires with pliers enough. So anyway, it'll, it'll be fine once we do the real lights. So if you, if you study all that, you'll know things like who the Pharisees are and who the Sadducees are and who the Herodians are and who the Zealots and the Essenes are and why, how the synagogues developed and why Paul or Saul, as we just read, being from Tarsus, is very, very important that he's not from Galilee or Judea. And why the Galilean Christians were very different than the Judean Christians. So Judea, for instance, was more, tended to be more like our fundamentalist Christianity where there was more uh, talk about the realities instead of living the realities in such a way that, uh, that the average person had a lot of very strict ideas but not as much overall knowledge backing it up. Whereas in Galilee, the Jews were much more authentic about their faith, and the average kid was brought up to have memorized the first five books of Moses by the age of 12, even though girls, even the, you know, like in some societies, girls weren't educated. In Galilee, they were. Okay? So when you, when you, uh, when you hear preachers today say that Jesus chose uneducated men to be his disciples... They're just, they're actually, that's a pretty uneducated opinion. What it comes from is in Acts 4, when the Pharisees and the scribes had James and John on trial and said, uh, they noticed that, that uh, they were, had this confidence that came from being with Jesus, even though they were uneducated men. But really, it's just a snub. They're basically saying, you didn't go to Harvard, 
you went to Miami University. How could you be educated? <laughs> you know, and uh, it was it was just a kind of a hubris that the the Christians and or the the Jewish followers of Christ or God in uh, they rejected Christ, of course, when He came. Um, they had this kind of uh, pride about their knowledge and their know-it-all things and, and, you know, defensiveness and so forth that you wouldn't have encountered in Galilee. And so they're actually offended because Peter and John, having been with Christ, know a whole lot of stuff, and they know that they know a whole lot of stuff. And it's just a put-down. And most preachers have just taken that statement, uh, you know, as face value, and, and so you hear lots of teachings that Jesus chose ordinary, uneducated men. He chose ordinary, uneducated men in the sense that they had memorized um, the first five books of the Bible by the age of 12, and they uh, had memorized around two or 3,000 other scriptures in the, in the Old Testament, and they could quote it in two languages. <laughs> that, that's who they were when they came off their fishing boats. Okay, so... Um, by today's standards, they would have been way past uh, a bachelor's degree or, or, or so in, say, biblical studies or something. And they would have been past that by the time they were teenagers. So, that, that's, so if you kind of study some things about the intertestament period, you begin to understand that. And la- I diverged into all that. Hopefully I got enough time to get through today's stuff. Just to kind of give us a little background about since we lost last week's message that why, when Jesus, you know, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, in that culture, it's a whole different thing than it is to us. When he talks to the woman at the well, it was a very radical act. Jewish men did not talk to women in public because Jewish men condescended toward women greatly, and he is, by addressing her in public, he's saying, you are of equal importance and value to me. And he's saying, I'm bringing salvation to the, to the Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so you need to understand a little bit about historically why. Then Acts 8 will mean so much more to you. And you'll understand why Philip found it necessary to wait. Because in, in the Bible, there are, there are covenants. And all covenants have eight essential ingredients. And all covenants have signs and ceremonies of enactment. They have signs and ceremonies of renewal. That's why the ceremony of enactment in the Christian life includes water baptism. And the ceremony of renewal includes the Lord's Day Supper. Okay? So, in marriage, you have a wedding. And then you have marital intimate relationships to, to renew the covenant uh, when you're young, several times a week. <laughs> when you're older, a little less. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but covenant renewal ceremonies are very, very important. And all covenants have vows. And they have signs and symbols. They have things like a necklace or, or a ring or um, so forth. Among the Amish, the men grow their beard after they're married. If an Amish man doesn't have a beard, it means I'm st- he's still available, and uh, so forth. Every, every covenantal people has these signs, ceremonies, and celebrations 
of enactment and reenactment with vows and with definitions of the partners in the covenants and all kind of ingredients. We have teachings on that if you want to develop that. But in the Bible, often one plus one equal one. And sometimes in the Bible, not, not, not just sometimes, often, one plus one plus one equals one. So you can't follow biblical ways and get a degree in math. <laughs> you have to lay that aside when you're working on your math. But because if you tell your professor that one plus one plus one equals one, <laughs> he's not going to go along with it. But the fact is, there is one father who is a complete person, one son who's a complete person, and one Holy Spirit who's a complete person, who are one God. And the scripture was written by one God through 40 human individuals on three continents over a 2,000-year period, God actually creating and using the personalities of those who wrote it and their circumstances and so forth. So it's nowhere in any way dictation. Therefore, you must understand the time period and the people who are writing it to understand what it's saying. Just like if you took a good literature class, you might study a little biography of John Steinbeck if you want to understand why he was a communist and an atheist and why he hated Christ or something, uh, but why he was such a great writer. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, why he didn't use his gifts rightly. So um, what's happened in modern times is we've been taught to interpret the Bible in, firstly, just in little sections of proof text, and as if it was written directly to, to us. But the Bible was written to people in situations and circumstances, and you have to know their situations and circumstances to understand what the Bible is about. Okay, so the, for instance, the epistles are directed toward either pastors of churches, Timothy and Titus, or churches that were living a certain kind of lifestyle that the, that the apostles had laid down because they'd been taught this by Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And so that's the backdrop of interpreting what they're saying in the epistles. So in you know, 1 Corinthians 16, when, they say, when he says, when you gather on the first day of the week, uh, set aside you know, money for the collection for the Jews and so forth, it's because all Christians gathered together on the first day of the week. Christians didn't miss that just because their kid had a soccer game. Or the sun was in their eyes or it was snowing too hard. or It was considered like a great, grievous offense to miss the Lord's Day. That's why John knows exactly what everyone's going to mean when he says, I was on the Isle of Patmos and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's saying, even though I'm exiled, I got up at dawn because Christ rose at dawn to, get, to, to do the best I could to worship with all of you in spirit and truth, even though I'm separated physically with you because we share this great union in Christ and, then there's, and we're joining the heavenly worship that's happening in Revelation 4 and 5 and I got up to be part of that meeting. You heard about the two Baptists that were stranded on a desert island. They got together for worship, and they set a goal for three next week. So, <laughs> desert island, set a goal for three. All right, well, anyway. So, you know, John is, based, John is by himself, but he's, still, but he's still going to the meeting. Because that's what Christians did. 
He didn't say, well, they beat me before I came here and they tried to boil me in oil and they tried to crucify me and I'm not feeling that great so I think I'll sleep in. Well, enough of all that. Just, I'm just trying to convince you that reading the whole books of the Bible and understanding the time period and the people they were written to is, will open up treasures and treasures and treasures to you of the great things of God. And that was no extra charge. But now I'm down to, of course, John's not here, so if I run over. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> none of you would rat me out, would you? <laughs> All right. So uh, J- Jason's still here, but fortunately he's hiding somewhere right now. Good. Um, all right, so let's get into Saul, or who became Paul, on the road to Damascus. And I've subtitled this, The Promise Fulfilled to Saul. Now, the reason it's important that Paul was of Tarsus and that he's also a disciple of Gamaliel, let's get into that just a little bit. Saul, the, the, uh, the Jews that were outside of Jerusalem and outside of Galilee, that is outside of Palestine or Israel at that time, that were part of what was known as the diaspora, that were scattered throughout the rest of the Roman Empire, they tended to be less hateful to the Gentiles than the Jews of Israel. So the Jews of Jerusalem in particular hated Gentiles to the utmost degree. It was way deeper than any racial tensions we have today or anything like that. And the... The reason, if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 and you read, or you go back and read, read all the law and all the provisions for bringing the law and the things of God to the aliens and so forth, you'll un- understand that Israel's main reason they were judged was they were unfaithful, faithful adulteresses to Yahweh over and over again, and they were supposed to be Yahweh's vehicle to bring the truths of God to the, to the world around them, and they didn't do it because they hated the people of the world around them. You can't really evangelize people you don't love. You know, people are always amazed. when I, I usually ask people in my second or third meeting with them, uh, you know, how often have you had a pastor who took two or three hours to meet with you and talk with you about the things of God and so forth, who was qualified, knew what they were doing, and could really help you grow. And everyone almost says, I've never had that. Well, that's indicative of the church today, because that was how Jesus taught people. He said, come on, hang out with me. Let's go do Panera Bread, or go for a walk, or paint, paint the living room, or something. You know, let's, let's do life together, and I'll uh, teach you as things come up. Okay, so you, you can't love people that, you ha- that you're not willing to spend time with and invest in. So Saul, Saul it's kind of important to understand that he's from Tarsus, which is today in a, what we would call Turkey, city of Asia Minor at the time. And he is more eclectic about the world around him. And he gets called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. There's a lot to do with who you were before you came to Christ that will have a, have a lot to do with the ministry you'll be, become in Christ, always. Read 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 8. Also, Saul 
like, like a good Hebrew boy of his day, he memorized the whole Old Testament probably by the age of 12 because he's a disciple of Gamaliel, the number one leading most uh, recognized Pharisee of that day. And the Pharisees invited the kids to be disciples based on their biblical knowledge at age 12. So Paul wouldn't have gotten that invitation had he not memorized the whole Old Testament and the oral traditions called the Midrash and the Mishnah, which would be equivalent to having memorized a study Bible, all the text and all the notes. And he did this by the time he was a teenager. So he, he didn't have a problem knowing the scriptures. He had a problem that he didn't really know the author of the scriptures. So uh, as all self-righteousness does in all performance-based approaches, which the Pharisees were the kings of, of performance-based approaches, Jesus' parable that we're going to read in the second, ceremony, second service, about the Pharisee and the publican, and the Pharisee was praying thus to himself, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. The, in John 9, when the blind man comes and they go, you were born entirely in your sins, and you're teaching us. They thought they were not born entirely in their sins. They thought their B.O. didn't stink. They thought they were righteous in themselves. And therefore, they uh, all, all performance-based thinking always leads to a great deal of self-righteousness and a great deal of struggles with depression because you'll be self-condemned inside and depression is anger turned inward. And so you're angry at yourself that you don't really measure up to your own standards because your standards are legalistic and performance-based. Grace always brings joy. And so along with that, you become judgmental of other people thinking you know more than they do. And you measure everyone in some way to put them down a couple of notches below you. And you become a control freak. And everyone's got to be in your mind. And it's the source of all kinds of hatred and prejudices in the world. And everyone's got to be like not quite as cool as you are. And so you disdain people who are different. That's why a Christian church building a multicultural, uh, multi-economic status, multi-education levels kind of culture is in fact the most important thing that could be done. Because it's the only thing that says we actually believe in grace. And we don't really care who you were before you came to Christ. What does that matter? It matters what you let Christ do with that. You know, we recently had a person go on sort of an accusation spree against thing, and they, they kept bringing up all these things about like what people were five years ago before they came to Christ. And I'm like, what does that even matter? It shows you don't understand grace. Right? I'm not even disappointed on what you were yesterday. <laughs> you know, or what you'll be tomorrow either. But, uh, but we want to see everyone completed in Christ. That's really what 2 Corinthians 5 saying, is saying. All right, so that, with that background, I'm running out of time, so I got to get focused. Paul was traveling. Uh, I'm not going to reread all this, but let's just go through our five points. Number one, 
Um, is it a distinct and separate experience from the new birth? Okay, remember the, the opening line. I love that John Gray read the opening line that Paul was still breathing out murder and threats. That's a great place to come to Christ from, right? Like, how, how, did, how did you get, well, I came to a, a Christian meeting breathing out murders and threats, and I was maybe hoping I could kill a few of them. <laughs> and then I went forward at the altar call because they dimmed the lights, and they said, just as you are. And, <laughs> and I was so happy. <laughs> and I decided not to kill anybody. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, So, uh, so he's, he's breathing out these murders and threats, and Jesus chooses him. He didn't choose Jesus. In fact, he was, he was, still, he was fighting, kicking the goats. He was fighting very hard against... And the goats, by the way, are points they put on the cart. So if the, if the horse can't kick back and upset the cart, because he's kicking against uh, prickly points that hurt too much. So Paul says, basically Jesus says, Paul, you're fighting against me. I'm trying to call you, and you don't want anything to do with it. You're running from the call of God in your life. So Paul stood up at church the next week and said, I've been seeking for the Lord all my life. No, and, <laughs> no he was seeking to not find the Lord very aggressively, as we all are in our sin. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so when was Paul converted? He says, who are you, Lord? Now, that's not like we, I might call John Luke, sir. Uh, how you doing, sir? Or something like that. But in Hebrew culture, you didn't call someone Lord except God. So Paul is saying when he says this, hey, you're the supreme God, but obviously I don't know who you are. And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're fighting against. And he said, oh boy. <laughs> and then Jesus just assumes the conversion and he says, because all conversions need callings. One of our most important missing elements of the whole gospel is that we pray sinner's prayer. When you're converted, you will have a sense of purpose, destiny, to be a part of a people that's going to change the world. And you will feel called to do it. And you'll feel called to study, uh, be, get inner healing, deliverance, uh, whatever it takes to mature in that calling. You'll be passionate to, 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 to reach people who are hurting and lost. And you'll begin to have some understanding of how to go about becoming that. That should happen at your conversion, as it does in every example of the New Testament with someone coming to Christ. Not uh, three years later after you... Prayed the nice sinner's prayer. So he, Jesus says, go into the city and I'll tell you what you must do. You know, just like in Acts 2, they, they're convicted of the heart and they say, what must we do? Don't pray with someone to receive Christ until they're saying, what must I do? I always say, you know, you're ready to receive Christ when you're ready to sign the contract, knowing that you're going to continue to read it as you grow. <laughs> Right? Like when we come to Christ, we don't really know what we're getting into. But as long as there's that desire to, 
Your heart is changed to quit being your own Lord and have him be your Lord and to grow up and do the things he's called you to do and you're gonna be a radically different person and if you knew you a week ago, you wouldn't know you today, then you're converted. Then you became a Christian in a biblical way. Now, he says, uh, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine and so forth. Now, so let's get into this a little bit. Number one, when was Paul converted? Some people might say when Ananias came and prayed for him, but I don't think so because the essence of conversion in the, in the, in the New Testament is calling and obeying. And so it's very clear that Jesus told him, go and someone will come in three days. And he did go into the city and he fasted and waited the three days. He said, this is so important. I think I'll fast till the guy gets here. Right? So I think that it's definitely a distinct and separate experience three days later when Ananias prays for him. Is the outward initial evidence of the inner reality speaking in tongues? Again, we covered this last week, but the Bible doesn't give us a textbook of everything. So it doesn't say he did not speak in tongues. It does not say he did speak in tongues. It does say he, he was healed, so there were some outward things going on because he was blind after he saw Jesus because the Bible's always full of uh, light, darkness, blind, seeing metaphors. And Paul thought he could see, and then Jesus struck him blind when, in fact, for the first time he could see. <laughs> and, and, so, and then three days later, Jesus healed him because he could really see indeed after all. So... Um, Paul does tell us in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, that I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. So there is, a, we're, you know, if you've studied, we're here when we covered some things like the third wave movement. There are some Christians who think you can get baptized in the Holy Spirit, not get released in your prayer language uh, right away, and start to experience spiritual gifts and an increased presence of God and increased power of God and so forth, and that speaking in tongues part will come later. And there are also third wave Christians who think, well, speaking in tongues doesn't necessarily come. Not everybody speaks in tongues because they'll quote Paul when he later says, does everyone speak in tongues? Which I think has to do with corporate gatherings, not with getting baptized in the Spirit. So it's, not, it's our understanding that people do get a prayer language when they get baptized in the Spirit. But because of faulty understandings about how to step into the spiritual dimension and so forth, there are, I do believe there are times that people get baptized in the Spirit, but don't really get set free in the flow and power of the Spirit till they... And Deanna was like that. Deanna had, had a prayer language and so forth, but she really didn't have the zapping God wanted her to get. And then we went through the teachings, and, we, and her and Anvesh were both there, and the night we prayed for like four people to get baptized in the Spirit, and they both got totally knocked over by God. I should, we should have known you guys were destiny right then. But uh, they both got totally blown away by the Lord. So... It doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues here, but it doesn't say anything against it. But we do know Paul spoke in tongues, and he considered it important because he wouldn't say, I speak in tongues more than you all. I doubt Paul said, yeah, I spend hours doing things that I don't think are very important. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, yeah, I play a lot of video games. <laughs> I watch a lot of TV. I don't think so, Tim. Um, it, the next question is, is it uh, normally followed shortly after conversion from a few moments to a few days? Well, this one tells us exactly 
that it was three days. Now, was Paul a mature Christian? Perhaps because of his former knowledge, and he had already probably began to rethink the Old Testament, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, that the veil of the Old Testament is removed in Christ. Perhaps he was a lot further along than most people are in three days. But I doubt he was a mature Christian. However, later in the chapter, his disciples let him down out of a basket in Damascus to escape. And um, he's obviously proclaiming the kingdom right away and making disciples, which most people aren't that equipped to do. So, um, that one has a bug in it now. All right, so, <laughs> extra protein. All right, so we see the point is that it doesn't, you know, again, the reason that's such an important point is lots of times people will fall into the idea that I need to have some degree of spiritual maturity. The only thing you really need is to want Jesus to be your king and lord and master and to want to be empowered to love and serve him, want more of his spirit. Uh, you have to be thirsty for the right thirst where you know the thirst of this world are not what you're thirsting after anymore. What you're going to thirst for is the things of God and the Lord himself. That's the qualification. There's lots of people sitting in this room that were baptized in the Holy Spirit when they weren't very mature Christians, including Moy. Um, I hadn't even quit smoking pot yet. I, I don't think I'd even quit dealing drugs yet. But, but I was praying about it. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and he immediately begins to proclaim Christ. So, number four, uh, this atmosphere of impartation issue. I love this one more than all the five because there is no reason to believe that Ananias was any kind of a leader. There's two Ananiases mentioned in the New Testament. One is Ananias that's associated with Caiaphas, the high priest, who's a Pharisee of Pharisee and was part of those who crucified Christ. I don't think that's the same guy. And it doesn't tell us he was an apostle or a deacon or an elder or really great Christian or anything. It just says a certain disciple named Ananias. And yet God uses him to pray for the greatest Christian in the history of the church. Because the New Testament had uh, an atmosphere of, of hearing the Lord and taking the initiative. They didn't perceive their role in evangelism as I'm going to get them to go to church and hope the professional people get them saved. Now, getting them to go to church is part of the Holy Spirit drawing them, but you need to become the professional people. Whether you get paid or not, it's another issue. <laughs> you need to become very well equipped to bring people along. You're called to that. That's what it meant when you were converted. So Ananias, uh, I love, you know, it, whether he was anointed or not, how can, how can we be sure? Because he's so filled with the Spirit that he can actually argue with the Lord. The Lord says, tells him to go and pray for Paul, and he actually, like, disagrees. <laughs> like, Lord... <laughs> What are you doing to me, Lord? I've been a good disciple. Why are you, this guy's killing people. Why are you sending me? <laughs> I, didn't, I don't really didn't want that assignment. And the, the Lord says, go, because he's a chosen instrument of mine. And he hears the Lord clearly enough to go. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I am not always that filled with the Spirit and intimate with the Lord and, and flowing in the power of the Spirit. Thank God that we have many days that we are, but there's times that I'm not. Ananias is so filled with the Spirit that he can have that kind of conversation with God and be chosen of God to go pray. And by the way, there are no other documents of church history anywhere that would lead anyone to believe he was any kind of leader. He was just a disciple who was spending time with God and was so close to God that he and had so much anointing of the Holy Spirit that he could carry on that kind of conversation with the Lord himself. That's why I love Ananias. And nobody but Jesus had to send him. And I always tell people, if you don't feel sent, because Jesus told all disciples to go, if you don't feel sent, come up for the prayer. You know, the portion of the service after Sundays that we pray for you, we will pray for you to feel sent. And then we'll kick you in the butt. And, you, and we will send you. No, <laughs> go, you're, you're sent. You're a, if you're a Christian, okay? So I like that. I love Ananias. He's, he's my favorite. Um, now, this thing about uh, ongoing fruit besides tongues well, it says, verse 20, he immediately began to proclaim Jesus. How many of us proclaim? I'm not talking, that is not saying he used gospel tracts or he learned how to take people through the Romans road or uh, to say the four spiritual laws or something like this. Proclaiming Christ was proclaiming everything about the old, who the, what the Old Testament tells us who Christ is. He's the second Adam. He's the real Abel. He's the real Moses and so forth. And he has come and he is, you know, all the, everything about the gospel. And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What are you going to do about it? He's, he's inviting you to submit to his kingdom. And it's a juggernaut. And if you don't submit to his kingdom, it's going to crush you. But if you submit to his kingdom, you'll fall on it and break you to pieces. <laughs> and so that's the Christian experience. You either get broken to pieces or you get crushed. <laughs> so that's the kingdom. I didn't say that, by the way. I'm such a mean preacher. Um, that, I didn't write that. You know, that's, that's just the truth of who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all. And you are called to do something about it. You're called to seek him and submit to his kingdom and, and, he is, and have him change you from the inside out, from the bottom up, all over your being as to who you become. Things which you could not do at all by yourself. He increased in strength and confounded the Jews. Very similar to the Jesus in Luke chapter 2, Right? When he's in the temple, confounding, increasing in wisdom and strength and confounding the scribes and Pharisees. Paul did that. According, and apparently, he started doing that right away. The Jews plotted together to do away with him. That's a great blessing of being a Christian, isn't it? So, in other words, people wanted to kill him. <laughs> so they might put him to death. How many people here have had someone actually start wanting to put you to death because you're upsetting their, their, you know, their religion too much? Um, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord and uh, not like it wouldn't be too much to ask you to uh, talk a little bit about the Bible would it and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews 
but they were attempting to put him to death. So, I mean, he has different groups of people trying to put him to death, <laughs> not just one group. <laughs> Isn't that good fruit? Uh, <laughs> and then I love at the end that after he leaves, uh, after he goes to Jerusalem, and they, th- they think, uh, you know, he, Barnabas has to explain that he's really a Christian, so they're not scared of him, and don't think he's just trying to buddy up with them so he can get him arrested or something. And so finally, when he leaves, it says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. <laughs> In other words, thank God Paul's out of here. <laughs> I could do without that kind of preaching. <laughs> I really, I'm going back to a secret sensitive for church. All right. Um, she's, so, Anyway, that's uh, the Apostle Saul and uh, the Saul who becomes Paul. By the way, the Saul-Paul thing, just if you don't know this already, names in the Bible have a great deal of importance. And from the beginning of Scripture and on into modern days, in many pagan cultures, people like if, your name, if I was a Christian and my name was Damian and I became a Christian, I would change my name because it's the Greek word for demon. I probably wouldn't like if, how's he going, brother demon? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, and that there are many, many cultures of the world where people still to this day take on Christian names when they become a uh, Christian. And in fact, in the early church, when you got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it became a tradition to take, and many churches still practice confirmation sometimes as a empty symbol of what used to be baptism in the Spirit, sometimes not so much empty but you choose a new name at confirmation for the new identity Christ is calling you to. So, you know, just like Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah and all through the, the Bible, we see people, you know, Peter becomes, or Simon becomes Peter and Cephas and so forth. Uh, Saul becomes Paul. And um, we will end with that. And next week we'll look at Cornelius and the Gentiles.